Welcome to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world. And other times, like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hello and welcome to this episode of Being Human. My name is Dr. Chuasa Kning, and today I'm joined by Dr. John Norcross to hear his thoughts on psychotherapy integration, which is an approach to therapy that goes beyond the confines of single school methods to see what can be learned from other perspectives. So psychotherapy integration takes into account that clients have specific needs and that a single school or orientation might not be enough to provide therapists with the resources and insights required to meet the different needs presented by different clients. John is the Distinguished Professor and Chair of Psychology at the University of Scranton and the Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Sunny Upstate Medical University. He is recognized as a leading authority on psychotherapy integration, and one of his many books includes the Handbook of Psychotherapy Integration and his latest, Personalizing Psychotherapy. I imagine that this discussion is going to be valuable for trainees, therapists, and educators alike, so I'm delighted to welcome you to the show. John, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine, Sook. It's my pleasure to be here with you and talk about psychotherapy integration. So let's jump right into it, John. So what does the research tell us about the need for psychotherapy to be integrative? Well, psychotherapy integration has probably existed as long as psychotherapy itself. Just think back to Freud. He experimented with different methods from catharsis to hypnosis to free association. In fact, he introduced psychoanalytic psychotherapy as an alternative to classical psychoanalysis because he knew the more rarefied approach lacked universal applicability. So it's been with us for a long time. And the research also indicates that as you become more seasoned, as you see more patients, you quickly realize that no single system of psychotherapy proves effective for all patients. So with maturity or with experience comes the wisdom that everyone needs something a little different, not just personalized to their problem or their treatment goal, but to their entire person, what we sometimes call whole person psychotherapy. So of course, integration or the older term eclecticism is the most frequent orientation or approach of practically all therapists. There are dozens upon dozens of surveys of psychotherapists that show virtually no one's a purist. Everyone uses a little of this and a little of that. And by the way, integration is the eventual outcome of any mature discipline or healing art. I mean, think about medicine. No one has to choose between surgery and medication or reassurance or this. It's pluralistic, it's pragmatic. You use what works tailored to each patient. I think you're really making a strong argument that this would then be a natural progression of someone who's maturing and gaining skill, you know, over time in their practice. Um, It does almost sound like, does does that mean it's 
obviously then better than just a single orientation approach, just doing one thing. If I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, I specialize, I'm a master CBT, you know, do I need to be integrative to be better? Well, if you carefully select your patients, then CBT may work for all the patients you select. But when you get out there in the real world where patients have different needs and desires, then CBT will obviously mistreat a significant portion of the population. How about if your next patient comes in and says, I'm not interested in changing my thoughts. I can do that with a self-help book. I want to dig into the root of my problem. Well, that's it. So you've mismatched. If someone says my primary goal in this psychotherapy is not symptom reduction, not behavior change, it's deep self-understanding then how's a CBT possibly a good match? Mm-hmm. So the moment you start thinking about individual differences, you'll see that no single therapy will suffice. And by the way, we're not just picking on CBT. It's also true of psychodynamic, humanistic, family mm-hmm. therapist, and the like. And that's precisely what the controlled research shows. In several meta-analyses, Integrative therapists have the lowest dropout rate compared to any other form of therapy. And while we don't know exactly why, we can confidently speculate that's because therapy is tailored to them. If you begin with CBT and that's not working, you move a different way. If someone wants a culturally adaptive form of therapy, then you go that way. So the problem isn't with what we call pure form systems of psychotherapy. The problem is universally and mindlessly applying that pure form therapy to every patient in every situation. I like that you said universally and mindlessly, because I I see that now more and more therapies are trying to cater to more and more problems, regardless of the person or the individual differences, as you've said it. But there's also the other issue, which many therapists, as you said, could might consider as integrative and eclectic. You know, they just, they sort of have gone for many different workshops of many different orientations of schools of therapies that I, I believe that's different from what you're actually suggesting. I was wondering when you could talk a little bit more about that. It's absolutely different. So uh, this is sometimes in the States called the workshop high. On Friday, you go to a Gestalt therapy workshop, and on Monday, you're suddenly doing Gestalt therapy. Uh, It's bizarre. So that haphazard, unsystematic use of multiple methods is known properly as syncretism, not integration. So if it's just a mismatch of techniques without any clinical rationale and without any research evidence, that's syncretism. We discourage that. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be systematic. And that's called integration, which by definition is systematic and you have a rationale. For example, you use this method because the old one is not working. Or you try this particular technique because the research evidence suggests it works for that disorder. Or you try this type of therapy relationship because the patient expresses a strong preference for it, or they're in this stage of change, or they have a strong religious commitment. So it's not syncretism, it's integration we see, and it's integration that we know reduces dropout and 
improves practice. Right, and you're saying that, you know, what, as you talked about it in the first part um, of the answers, is that this person, let's say, I was going to say John, but your name is John, so we use Mark. Mark, our very experienced psychotherapist who has been doing it for 30 years, has learned CBT and let's say uh, something closer, interpersonal psychotherapy. It's a bit, it's a bit closer. And there's there are somewhat different techniques in both orientations. Um, does he have to be you know, a master psychotherapist in both orientations before he's integrative, or does he go for, you know, multiple workshops and just sort of pick and choose different techniques? You know, how does one actually be integrative in the in a systematic way? Well, that's a great question, and that goes to the heart of how to train people to become integrative. Uh, as you know, there's several routes to get to integration. Uh, probably. According to our research, uh, the most frequent path to becoming integrative is what's called assimilative integration. That is, you are thoroughly trained to competence. I don't think you have to say mastery, but competence of a single psychotherapy system. So that may be interpersonal psychotherapy, experiential therapy, CBT, person-centered therapy. You have a home base. And that usually occurs during graduate training and you get some additional practicum experience. Then it takes a lifetime of gradually incorporating other methods and techniques from different systems of psychotherapy. So let's say someone begins with IPT, that's what they learn, they're competent in, then they pick up a few techniques, say, two chair work from emotion focused therapy and start doing some homework assignments and CBT or teaching emotional regulation skills from DBT. And then a few years later, they say, you know, I know a lot about change strategies, but I'd be helping some of my patients with acceptance methods. So you maintain the home theory and then gradually with training, assimilate these other methods. That is probably the most realistic and frequent way of becoming an integrative therapist. And if you essentially only have a year or two of formal psychotherapy training, that's the approach we recommend. Because otherwise, you just know a little bit of everything, and you're not really competent in any of that. However, if you do have longer time, um, such as the United States requiring the doctorate, uh, say for psychologists, most people can become competent in at least two systems of psychotherapy, only because we have a longer period of training, five to six years. So I'm actually trained in, very happily, so it's like market with CBT. And then you've also mentioned the two-chair technique from emotion-focused therapy, which I'm, I'm also trained in. But both of them seem quite theoretically different. Um, and when you're talking about Mark being mainly trained in IPT and assimilating, let's say, the two-chair technique, does he need to know the rest of the theory of EFT? Or could he just sort of take that one technique out of EFT and assimilate it into his primarily IPT practice? There's ongoing debate about that. Some people believe that you can't just reach in and pick out a technique 
without having some context or concepts for it. I'm not one of those people, so uh, my first mentor was the late Arnold Lazarus, uh, developer of multimodal therapy, who said, look, you can just pick techniques. In fact, his multimodal therapy is an exemplar of technical eclecticism. He used to say, stop wasting your time with theory. Aspirin works. It doesn't matter what the theory is. You need to know how to and when to prescribe it, how to use it. Of course, know its side effects and limitations, but aspirin works whether you have a theory or not. So learn particular techniques and when to use them. So in the technical eclecticism route to psychotherapy integration, we don't worry so much about the conceptual scaffolding or theoretical background. We use what works because it's technical eclecticism is quite pragmatic. But the, there's a competence in using that particular technique. So it's not just, I've read it on Google and that seems pretty cool. So let me just try it out. Well, um, act, exactly. One still needs training. One still needs training to do it. And ideally some supervision the first couple of times you try it out. Even if it's just uh, a technique. Sure. And it's called deliberate practice. So if you're past training, you get some peer supervision, you know, good workshops actually practice skills and you get some feedback on it. You can hire someone or in peer supervision, someone who knows how to do, say, empty chair work or two chair work and say, let me practice this a few times with you for an hour or so. That's what good continuing education does. It gives you competence and confidence in these particular skills. And when you're talking about sort of systematic integration, do I need to then consider how the empty chair technique fits in with my home orientation? You know, how does it actually fit in with IPT or do I need, you know, how do I work that? Well, again, if I was a theoretician, I would tell you, you'd have to be careful about just sticking things together. Luckily, I'm a pragmatist and I want to know what works. So Mark Goldfrey, one of the pioneers of psychotherapy integration, and actually the co-editor of that handbook of psychotherapy integration, is a CBT therapist who routinely uses two-chair and empty chair work. You know, this notion somehow that when worlds collide, patients are confused, that almost never happens. Here's an example of that. Think about the last time you may have gone to another health practitioner. If that health practitioner suggested some over-the-counter herbal remedies that we know work and then gave you a prescription and then suggested a small bit of surgery and then just suggested, I don't know, some relaxation exercises, would a patient ever stand up and scream? They are theoretically inconsistent? Of course not. Mature sciences use what works. No patient ever experiences that. In fact, I'm asked that all the time uh, when I, I show some of my videotapes. People will say, well, geez, one minute here, you're doing your little Freudian business with interpretations and analyzing defenses. Then later in the session, you know, you're kind of Carl Rogers. And then another point, you look like you're a cheerleading coach. And I say, that's where the patient was moving through the stages of change. There's no need 
for this overarching theoretical consistency. We need to instead focus on the patient's experience. No patient has ever said to me, those things are theoretically inconsistent with a single exception. The single exception is all, always fellow mental health the psychologists who've been trained in that. Right, right. Do I, hey, wait Beyond a minute. That, I thought we were doing this. Say it works. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So it's almost at the When hospital. I went to two chair work with one of, happened to be a psychiatrist, he said, oh, you just went gestalt on me. And I said, well, does it seem to be working? He said, yeah, but I didn't know we were going to do that. No one else says stuff like that. It's, can we do things that work and address what I need? It seems to be at the heart of it, um, the like very client-centered, right? Because you're really looking at what, uh, at, the, at the client and what the client needs and maybe is even asking for. You know, I don't want CBT as an explicit ask. Um, and I would prefer a diff, you know, something else I tried it once and it wasn't very helpful. Um, and not insisting that this has to be the way. It's very collaborative and co-constructed to be sure. Uh, so in that sense, it is quite person-centered. You know, there's lots of ways of personalizing uh, this. Um, my recent book you mentioned uh, with Mick Cooper is about personalizing specifically to patients' strong preferences. The meta-analyses indicate that when we assess and then accommodate their strong preferences, dropout from therapy reduces by almost half. Think about that. You can cut the dropout in psychotherapy by simply accommodating patients' strong preferences. Now, simply because they ask for something doesn't mean you automatically give it to them. There's still clinical, legal, and ethical concerns. But if we had a little more respect for their knowledge of themselves, and just flexibly responded to that, therapy works better and fewer dropouts ensue. I'm going to use that and bring you somewhere else and we're going to take a little detour because with public health and you know psychotherapy being brought into public health and insurance coverage, you don't get the choice. You know, you're offered, let's say in the UK, you said CBT. You know, that's your brief, your brief uh, psychotherapy. You have to go through this before you take anything else. Um, but it's not accommodating to your client's preferences. So how do you, how do you well, manage preferences that? preferences are much, much broader than the therapy approach itself. Hmm. It's how you relate to them. Hmm. How structured or directive do you want to be? Right. Do you want homework assignments? Should we focusing on the present, the future, or the past? How frequently should we meet? Do you want individual therapy versus couples, family group? How about medication? Do you like self-help resources? How long should we meet for? So even if your insurance says you have 12 sessions, there are all kinds of important preferences that can be assessed and accommodated within that work. It's not simply the type of therapy. And as a good CBT therapist would say to you, sometimes you're more directive in CBT therapy and you lead from the front of the boat. And other times you are less directive and you lead from the back of the boat. So any therapy orientation can still accommodate all kinds of important preferences. 
it's very in line with, you know, the being autonomy supportive, you know, and really making sure that your client's need for autonomy is being satisfied within, you know, whatever modality that you're practicing, that the relationship, uh, the, the relationship is at working out for the client, you know, the therapist is actually yes. listening. And of course, we've known that for years in one way, but what's distinctive about this is now we have a hundred studies on accommodating patient preferences. And we know you reduce dropout and you improve therapy yeah. by doing it. By 50%. So I'm very excited about yeah. this. And by the way, we know that's not the only way of personalizing. Certainly you can do it to treatment goals and the particularly disorder. Uh, but Bruce Wampold and I have an entire book filled with meta-analyses on how to be responsive to tailor or personalize. So we know it works if you tailor therapy to the stages of change, right? Pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. And I guarantee you every seasoned psychotherapist is already personalizing to some extent. The person who comes in and denies having a problem is obviously getting something different than the patient who says, here's my disorder, let's go. Right. I mean, it just makes perfect sense. We can personalize to the patient's reactance level. How directive to be? It depends upon the patient. Some patients, you are too directive and you guide too much. They're going to walk out. Other patients will walk out because you're not enough. Cultural accommodations in terms of language spoken, cultural symbols and the like, religious accommodations, coping style, attachment style, there's all kinds of ways of employing research-supported personalization. Preference is merely one. So if I'm now training, since you've brought in accommodating, that accommodating to preferences or doesn't have to be always bringing in different techniques. So as a trainee, as you said, trying to develop competency in a home base, I may only know CBT, right? It's not because I'm not seasoned, right. I'm not experienced. And that way, you know, I can't assimilate so well yet because I'm just starting out in my first six months of training. But even then, sounds like you're saying we can still be thinking about accommodating and adjusting and, and, and being client-centered in our approach, even within a single school. Absolutely. Uh, you're, you're getting that just right. And in fact, Mick Cooper and I, toward that end, have developed a quick little instrument called the CNEP. The Cooper Norcross Inventory of Preferences, which I'm not selling, by the way, it's free, it's in the public domain, just go to cnip.com, uh, to quickly assess client strong preferences. And what's also interesting, there's some uh, fascinating emerging research that suggests, you know, it may not be so important to match exactly what a patient wants, but you need to avoid what they strongly dislike or detest. So, you can use a CNIP or you can simply ask, you know, I now understand that you are seeking to reduce your depression or your anxiety. Could we speak a little bit about how we can personalize or individualize that to you since you're the expert on you? Do you have any strong preferences for the way therapy operates? Do you have any strong preferences for what you would dislike? Those two or three open-ended questions get you fascinating results. It improves the lines. It gives patients choice. 
And we know according to the research, it works. So whether you use an instrument or you simply ask, you can be in any home theoretical orientation and still personalize. So, but what if, you know, so sometimes my interns come in and their clients might say, I, my interns are training in CBT as their home base. Intern, uh, a client comes in and says, I want to do, I want to look into my past and sort of heal from that. And it's more humanistic. And my, you know, my interns not even trained in that. Is it possible to then take into account you know, take into account what the client is asking for, or do I, does my intern then have to say, you know what, I, I wish I could, but unfortunately I'm not actually trained to do that. We can accommodate to other things. Let's apply to another field. You go to your internist, who's not a surgeon, and you say, I would like you to remove this bone spur from my foot. Your internist says, well, you know, I'm not a podiatrist and I'm also not a foot surgeon, so I can't do that. But if we both think it's a good idea, how about if I refer you? So it's an interesting question when we staff these. So when it comes to strong preferences, you can, of course, immediately adopt the preference. You can adapt it. I mean, just change it a little so it fits within your home theory. You can say, no, I can't do that for these reasons, or you can refer elsewhere. When there's a huge mismatch, we suggest referring quickly elsewhere. But I would suggest that most CBT interns and trainees equipped with sufficient listening skills can listen to someone's history, can go more schema-based and still help a patient. If a patient wants to go deeper, and maybe work exclusively with feelings and don't want to examine dysfunctional thoughts that are that arise from those, then I think the mismatch is so large you refer elsewhere. This is a fascinating conversation because I'm thinking like CBT and how they're insisting on certain things to be done within a session. You know, what, what you're saying, okay, homework is really important, but they don't call it homework now, an action plan. They call it action plan and not homework. You know? Well, you know, that's what's fascinating because we certainly want trainees to learn a therapy approach correctly right. to, to obtain fidelity. But we should really start by acknowledging a few things. First, fidelity to therapy approach does not relate to treatment outcome. So maybe a training goal, I wanna make sure you know how to do CBT as operationalized and treatment manuals, but let's not believe friends that it systematically improves patient success. Secondly, when there are inevitable tensions between treatment fidelity or compliance and patient flexibility, the research and ethics say every time, go with flexibility not rigidity. One of the things that's happening now is that there are all these certifications from the various orientations. You're having a reaction there already, um, but you know, it's well, very- Well, you know, at the end of this, Suk, I'm gonna make you a certified integrative therapist. You just send me a check for $200 and I'll send you the certificate. I'm on. <laughs> um, and, and so, I, you know, having to do all this, it forces you 
you know, it actually forces the therapist to ignore um, client's preferences because you get marked down, you don't get your certificate if you don't have the action plan, if you don't have the agenda to start, right? It's It, it seems to be more and more difficult, at least in formal training to, to have- Well, if you're training. going to a clinic that says it does CBT, that's fair enough, mm-hmm. right? It's like, if you now go to the podiatrist and say, I want to have the bone spur off. And then you get there and say, no, not really. I want you to take off the lump on my arm. I mean, it's fair enough for them to say, we don't do that here. You came to a foot surgery place. So if you're going to a CBD clinic, it's perfectly fine to say, this is what we provide. And it's perfectly fine that people learn to do a therapy correctly with fidelity first, but not at the patient's expense. Expense. Yeah, right. That's right. where it becomes a clinical and ethical problem. Right. And so we're, we're going to wrap up, but I mean, you know, you've kind of mentioned training a little bit and, and we do a training at Relate and we work a lot with universities. It seems a lot for interns, you know, they're quite overwhelmed. So I, I've noticed two problems is one, they want to try everything. And for every client that comes in, they go like, oh my gosh, DBT worked for that person. I got to do a workshop in DBT, you know, for this one, you know, exposure response prevention therapy, which I'm going to learn that. And at the end of it, they're trying to learn five different therapies, you know, for their five different clients. Um, The other one is that they are sticking very rigidly to one single therapy and unable to adjust to the client and be client-centered and even to listen. So, you know, what's what's a better way maybe to help trainees or to help, you know, educators to train their interns? Well, a better way is to go back first to the therapy relationship uh, and make sure. So if you're clinging tenaciously to a single therapy approach or running around like without a chicken with a head screaming, I need to learn something else tomorrow, you're not sitting, listening to a patient. So in all good training programs, there first has to be training to competence in basic helping skills. If you want to talk about competence, let's start there. Active listening, empathic, support, assessing preferences, taking a history, doing a mental status exam, establishing and maintaining a therapeutic alliance is by far the most important competence. Secondly, I do believe you should get competence in at least one therapy system. However, we we need to be modest and humble about the effects of that. You know, when someone says, I know DBT works for that. Well, show me the evidence that DBT works better than anything else. For example, with Borderline personality disorder, DBT works. I'm a big fan, a friend of Marsha Linehan, its developer, but there are now at least six psychotherapies that work equally well as DBT. For depression, meta-analysis after meta-analysis shows there are at least seven or eight therapies that work equally well. You don't need to learn a whole new therapy system for each patient. There is no research evidence for that. Yes, for trauma patients, you need to learn some form of exposure, but there's no evidence one form of exposure works better than the other. So it can be EMDR, it could be prolonged exposure, it can be narrative exposure, it can be CBT, take your choice. 
So let's get away from some of this specious, I need to learn a new therapy for each patient. No, to be sure each patient needs a new therapy, but that doesn't have lots to do with the therapy approach. That has to do with understanding who they are, personalizing therapy to them, maintaining a wonderful therapeutic alliance, routinely monitoring their outcome, and doing the other things that we know predict treatment success. So that's what I would tell your interns. Excellent. So a therapeutic alliance, and I think the first thing you said was, you know, make sure your common factors are solid. You know, these things work. We know it works across schools and across clients. And I think we, one thing I've noticed- And we, we know pay, yeah, they work to it. more powerfully than a treatment method A for disorder Z. That's right. And one thing I've noticed is that people stop paying attention to actually the deliberate practice of listening because they think, well, that's boring. I've already got that. You know, I, I want to learn something kind of cool and exciting. It's not sexy enough, but I, th I think your point is that it's, it's the most important thing and it provides the foundation for you to be properly integrative, uh, systematically so. Um, be right, competent. and that's not personal opinion. That's solid research evidence. Uh, we now know that. In fact, what you spoke about, uh, Sook, is frequently called here the tragedy of the commons. Um, like many nations, American is pretty, America is pretty competitive. So what's common? Active listening, mm -hmm. personalizing, routine outcome measurement, cultural accommodations. All those things are seen, as you said, not new, not novel, not sexy. Uh, so people run out and just take workshops that have really no demonstrable impact while forgetting the core commonalities of how people heal. Right. I feel like that was a mic drop moment. when <laughs> You said this is not my personal opinion. It's, it's, a, it's research based. It's actually a fact for it by now. Um, so you work on that, work on mastering at least one modality or school of orientation and does it have to be evidence-based or, or could I be you know doing it uh, psychodynamically well psychodynamic short-term psychodynamic is evidence-based um, you know we're each going to draw the line at what we would characterize as evidence-based mm -hmm. at a different mm -hmm. place certainly I think there's at least a couple dozen therapies that have sufficient research to be called evidence-based you know, there's some of the older systems that still have no randomized clinical trials like pure psychoanalysis and the like. I do think you're not allowed to just create things, uh, particularly as a trainee, because you think they work. Uh, if we are to be a science, you start with a therapy approach to be sure that's compatible with you, that's fairly systematic and has a fair degree of research support. What kind of research support will disagree with, right? My CBT colleagues love randomized clinical trials. I love those. I also like naturalistic effectiveness. I adore process outcome studies. But yes, you should choose one that's a bona fide therapy with some research evidence to begin. Right. And the last point, I, I love this one. You said each patient needs a new therapy, not necessarily a new therapist, but definitely they need it to be customized. They need to be tailored because each person is a different individual and needs to be seen as such. 
such an important reminder uh, for us. So on that note, thank you, John, Indeed. for joining us uh, today, sharing all your wisdom and definitely food for thought. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of Being Human. We'll be hosting guests on a regular basis. So be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and live a life on our own terms and one that's meaningful to us. My name is Dr. Chua Sukning, and I look forward to sharing some more valuable insights from the world of mental health with you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care.